good morning, everyone. Welcome to the next lecture in this lecture series. Um, the good news is it's the last lecture before Thanksgiving break, so please bear with me. Um, you remember that we talked a little bit about the development of the nervous uh, system yesterday, and we started out by covering uh, the process of how basically earliest embryo develops, and that is the plastocyst. So the fertilized egg, the oocyte, basically undergoes a series of cell divisions, and then eventually develops into the plastocyst. And in the plastocyst, you have basically for the first time uh, cells that will develop into different cell fates. Um, you have the surrounding cells in the plastocyst, which uh, are the troph ectodermal cells, and then you have this inner cell mass. So that's this part, this portion inside the plastocyst. And in this inner cell mass, those are actually the embryonic stem cells. And you've seen that we can isolate these embryonic stem cells and bring them into culture. And in culture, these cells have the ability to self-renew. And then if you give them the appropriate extrinsic factors, they can differentiate into different cell types and tissues. So those are the two main characteristics of these stem cells, that they can uh, self-renew and that they are pluripotent. They can give rise to different cell types. Um, and then we talked a little bit about cell lineage and that these cells have two different options. They can divide symmetrically, give rise to two identical daughter cells, which are pretty much identical to the, the parental cell, or they can divide asymmetrically, give rise to one stem cell and to another cell that differentiates into uh, a different cell type. So essentially, um, for the cells, for the S cells, sorry, the stem cells, to uh, remain stem cells, they need a proper environment. And such a microenvironment can usually be formed by the cells that are in close uh, proximity to the stem cell. And they form this so-called niche, a stem cell niche. And we then briefly talk, uh, talked about such a stem cell niche, um, which has been identified at uh, the bottom of these uh, villi in the intestinal epithelium. So I just want to go through this again very quickly. Essentially, you have the intestinal epithelium, which is special in that it very quickly regenerates itself. So within five days, the whole structure here, all the cells in the structure will basically be replaced. And the way that this happens is by um, having stem cells here at the very bottom of the crypt, which divide and then give rise to uh, these precursor cells. So precursor cells are cells that have a more restricted uh, uh, potency uh, in, in uh, comparison to the stem cells. So these precursor cells then rapidly proliferate and then migrate up and differentiate up here. Okay? So again, the stem cells sit here at the very bottom of the crypt. And I started showing you a couple of experiments, or actually one experiment yesterday, that has led to the identification of these stem cells. Because they're really hard to identify in a tissue, <coughs> because usually they are rare, they're not really morphologically distinct, and they may not even divide very rapidly. So it's hard to really 
localize the cell that is a stem cell in a tissue. So we talked about this, whoa, about this pulse chase experiment here. Um, and I got a few questions on this experiment after the lecture. But basically what researchers have done is they've taken out part of the intestinal tissue, which is shown here. They put it in a culture dish and basically added normal cell culture medium to it, but then they also added radioactively labeled thymidin, which gets incorporated only in cells that divide. It, they incorporate it into their DNA, okay? So this is a radioactive label, and this allows us to trace these cells. But what's important here is that after this pulse of radioactive thymidin, you basically give a chase of cold thymidin, which is not labeled. So in this way, you just basically mark um, this particular uh, pool of cells that were dividing at a specific time point. And then you can follow these uh, proliferating cells. You basically cut tissue sections at different time points after you give the pulse. And you see what happens is that here, uh, after about 40 minutes of giving the pulse, you see these proliferating cells at the bottom of the crypt here. And then you see that they migrate up along the side of the villi until they reach the very top within three days. So this made a lot of sense to researchers and they therefore concluded that the stem cells must sit somewhere at the bottom of the crypt. Do you have any questions on this? Or is it clear? All right, good. So then we can move on. So now we still don't know exactly what is the cell type that constitutes a, cell, a stem cell here in this microvilla crypt. So researchers have done more sophisticated experiments to actually trace the lineage of cells in this um, villi structure. So as a first step, they basically used a couple of different antibodies. And they found a specific gene that seemed to be expressed in a small pool of cells here at the very bottom of the crypt. And that gene was called LGR5. Okay. It's not on the slide here, but you will need this information to understand the next slide. Here, okay. Now this is a rather complicated experiment, but I want to take you through it step by step because it really outlines very nicely how the beauty and the power of mouse genetics to do these kind of cell lineage studies. So what we have here are basically two different transgenic mouse lines that researchers have generated. Okay? Now one of these transgenes is shown here at the very top and the other transgene construct is shown here at the very bottom. So in the end, these will be in two separate mouse lines that we generate, and then we'll actually cross those two mouse lines. Okay? So bear with me here. You can see that the first transgene has an LGR5 promoter. This promoter is only going to be active in cells that will activate a transcription of the LGR5 gene. Okay? And that will allow us to trace the lineage of the cells that express LGL5. Now, hooked up to this promoter is a so-called pre-recombinase. Does anyone know what pre-recombinase is? Have you heard about that in previous lectures? Yes? 
Okay, good. <laughs> so pre-recombinase is a protein isolated from uh, the virus, and it can basically recognize certain repeats in the genome, and it then mediates recombination of um, the repeats, and whatever is in between those repeats uh, can be uh, excised from the genome. Okay. Now, in this case, we're dealing with a specialized uh, Cre uh, construct because this Cre construct or Cre protein has been genetically engineered in a way that it's fused to a domain of the estrogen receptor. Okay, and in this way, we can make this Cre inducible. Okay, so first of all, it will only be expressed in cells that switch on the LGFI promoter. But now we make it, on top of that, we make it inducible. Uh, in fact, we can inject mice with a compound called tamoxifen, which is basically an estrogen analog. And only when tamoxifen binds to this ER portion will Cre become active. Okay? Now you see in the second, and then when Cre is active, it can actually diffuse into the nucleus. It actually has a nuclear localization signal attached to it. And in the nucleus, it can bind to these repetitive sequences here called LOX-P sequences. And it can now mediate recombination of these LOX-P sequences and whatever is in between. Okay? Um, so in the second mouse line, we basically have this construct here. Here we have a promoter, which is active in any cell. We want it to be ubiquitously active. And then we have this uh, beta-galactosidase um, gene here. Does anyone know what beta-galactosidase can be used for? Yeah, exactly. So it's an enzyme, and enzymes can convert right, a substrate into a product. In this case, we can use this for basically a colorimetric assay where we add a colorless substrate, and then Peter Gal will actually convert it into blue color, which is actually shown here. Okay, So you can see that the Peter Gal gene, or cassette as we say, here is uh, preceded by such a blocking segment. So what this blocking segment does, it basically inhibits um, the expression of Peter Gal unless Cree will diffuse in the nucleus, into the nucleus, and then excise this blocking segment. All right. Now things start making sense. Basically, we can cross the two mouse lines. Right? Remember, one mouse line here, one mouse line has this transgene. And then in the offspring, we can select mice that have both transgenes in every single cell. OK. So what's going to happen is that as soon as LGF5 becomes active, as soon as the LGFI promoter becomes active and uh, leads to the transcription of this Cre-ER protein, Cre-ER will be expressed. Okay? Now the researchers can now choose a time point when they inject the mice with tamoxifen. So what tamoxifen then does is it will actually bind to the ER portion here. It will activate Cre, which will diffuse into the nucleus. It will bind to these two LOX-P sites then it will excise the blocking segment, and now beta-gal will be expressed. And we can then cut tissue sections, for example, through the intestine. And we can now stain these sections 
with um, uh, a, a colorimetric assay. Okay? So in this way, we can now identify those cells that express LGR5, and we can monitor their cell lineage because we can basically choose the time point after injection when we sacrifice the mouse and cut tissue sections. Okay. So if you do that after one day, only one day after tamoxifen injection, you see that only, actually it's like one or two cells here at the very bottom of the crypt get labeled with beta-gal. If you wait five days after tamoxifen injection, you see that a lot more cells will now start to express LGF5. And basically, therefore, this blocking segment will be removed and beta-gal becomes active in all these cells. So essentially, you can trace, again, these uh, stem cells that then give rise to all the other cells in this villi structure. So complicated experiments, but mouse genetics are really extremely powerful to do these uh, lineage tracing studies. Okay. So one more experiment that researchers did to show that these LGF5 positive cells are truly uh, the stem cells in this stem cell niche in the crypt. Um, so of course, one criterion is that they can self-renew. But another criterion is that they can give rise to different cell types. So what researchers have done, they isolate specifically these LGF5 expressing cells. And they put them into culture on, on a matrix. And what they found is that these cells can divide and then form these villi-like structures. So they really resemble the structures that you would see in the intestine. And more than that, they then immunolabeled uh, these structures with different antibodies that they know are specific to different cell types that make up the villi. Okay? So they found that these LGF5 expressing cells can give rise actually to all four differentiated cell types that they found in the intestinal epithelium, or that you can find in the intestinal epithelium. These are the absorptive enterocytes, goblet cells, panic cells, endocrine cells. So these are differentiated cells, and that's why we basically have very specific markers by which we can identify these different cell types. So in summary, we have shown, we've seen what the lineage is of these cells, we've shown that they can self-renew, and we show that over the course of several days, they give rise to all these different cell types. So these are the stem cells in the intestine. Interesting. Okay. Now I want to show you another example of a different stem cell niche. There are different, uh, there are stem cell niches in the developing nervous system and even in the adult nervous system. So let's start with the developing nervous system. Here you can see that very early on, uh, basically the, the precursor of the central nervous system forms, which is the neural tube, by uh, this um, rolling up of the neural plate, so this is ectodermal tissue. It basically rolls up and it forms this liquid-filled uh, neural tube. And then in the center of this neural tube, we have 
essentially this, this ventricle. And we all know that the neural tube eventually will lead to the formation of the brain and the spinal cord. So in the embryonic uh, neural tube, you find this particular region, which is just lateral of the ventricle. And this is the stem cell niche in the developing neural tube. This is the so-called subventricular zone. And it has been found that the stem cells in the subventricular zone can undergo two types of cell divisions. They can either divide um, symmetrically, which is shown here. And by the way, they are, they're really attached to um, the, the wall, the lateral wall of the ventricle, which is shown here. So they can divide um, symmetrically and basically give rise to two identical daughter cells, which are again stem cells. Or uh, they can divide asymmetrically. And in this way, one uh, cell, one daughter cell, actually remains attached to the ventricle. And it's going to be another stem cell. And the other cell, which is frequently called a transient amplifying cell, because it rapidly proliferates, um, this cell will migrate outwards, so basically from the subventricular zone outwards, and it gives rise to um, then more uh, restricted cells with a more restricted cell fate, precursor cells, which eventually give rise to uh, different uh, cell types, namely the astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, and neurons. Now, for a long time, it was actually believed that um, there are no neurons formed in the adult brain. But over the past few years, researchers have then found different regions in the adult brain um, where there is a small number of cells that can actually uh, give rise to new neurons. And these are the cells, again, in the subventricular zone, right here. So on the wall of the lateral ventricle. And then there's also a region in a nearby the hippocampus, which also has some of these stem cells, or, or forms a stem cell niche. Um, and essentially, as you can show here on the right, this is basically what this neural stem cell niche would look like in the adult nervous system. And uh, two particular cell types play a very important role here. And these are, on one hand, these pendimal cells, which really line the lateral ventricle. And then also these endothelial cells here in red, which um, basically form the epithelium of the blood vessels, right? You learned about the endothelial cells. These are these thin epithelial cells which line the blood vessel. And as you can see here in blue, we have this neural stem cell. It makes two types of contacts. You see, it basically extends a long process that contacts the, the basal lamina, actually, of these endothelial cells, and it derives certain signals from it. And then it also projects alveoli into the ventricle itself. And you can only imagine, I mean, researchers were really stunned to see this, this, this villi structure here that projects into the ventricle. And they think that important signals will be derived from the ventricle 
that the cell otherwise wouldn't have access to, but they still don't know exactly what those signals are. So this um, cell in the um, subventricular zone here, similar to the cells that, to stem cells that you can find in the uh, developing nervous system, it can now divide asymmetrically and give rise to these transient amplifying uh, neural precursor, the progenitor, progenitor cells, okay? And these in turn can give rise to neuroplasts, which can, which can then uh, form neurons or differentiate into neurons. So it's a rather complex process, but it seems that you really need these stem cell niche here in the subventricular zone to maintain uh, the fate or to keep the stem cell the stem cell, so to say. All right, one last example. Um, basically, there are also stem cell niches for blood cells. And there are two types of niches. One is located in the embryonic liver, but in the adult, there's a stem cell niche that you probably know of, and that is the bone marrow. So that's the fatty kind of tissue in our bones. And researchers have uh, realized long time ago that you can actually transplant the bone marrow and basically take it from a donor and give it to patients where, for one reason or another, these uh, cells have been destroyed because of disease. So this is already a very important uh, clinical application of these stem cells. Now you can see in this very complex scheme here that all the different types of cells in the blood are derived from one single type of stem cell. Okay? This is the so-called multipotent hematopoietic stem cell. And this stem cell in turn gives rise to uh, two types of stem cells that are more restricted in their ability to give uh, basically offspring to um, cells with committed cell lineage. So these are the myelate stem cells and the lymphoid stem cells. And no worries, you don't need to learn all the details of this cartoon. I just want you to know that we have these, this one stem cell here, and then the more committed stem cells, and then we have these extrinsic factors which can really determine the fate of all these different precursor cells. These are so-called cytokines. You probably learned about the cytokines in some of your other courses. So these can be growth factors that can drive the cells into a specific cell fate. <clears throat> so for example, um, we have certain growth factors that will lead to the generation of the T and B cells, the immune cells. Now here we have um, basically an example um, where if your body realizes that it needs to transport more oxygen, for example, if you are on vacation at high altitudes, then your kidney is gonna secrete some of these uh, erythropoietin, uh, cytokine, or short EPO. And EPO will then lead to the terminal proliferation and differentiation of this particular precursor cell, CFUE, into erythrocytes. Okay? Some of you may have heard about EPO in a different context. Anybody? Yes? The uh, like they need to, or they try to Exactly. So, so most famous person there, Lance Armstrong, but probably many other cyclists, injected themselves with EPO 
to get more red blood cells because then of course you can supply the muscles with more oxygen that gives you an advantage in a race. Uh, it certainly can have yeah, side effects for sure. <laughs> All right, so it definitely wants me to move on to the next chapter here. So again, what are the stem cells? Those are cells where a single cell can uh, replicate itself and or basically differentiate into many different cell types, give rise to many different cell types. So of course, in this way, they're very valuable for researchers, first of all, to study cell fate, but then also because of their potential um, to differentiate into any kind, pretty much, uh, of specialized cell. So they could be used to treat numerous health problems. <coughs> wow. For example, they could be used to replace cells in tissues that have been damaged, for example, by a degenerative disease, such as in Parkinson's disease, um, or in tissues that have uh, undergone traumatic injury, so for example, in spinal cord trauma. Um, but also researchers have used these stem cells to as basically delivery vehicles for gene therapy. So using uh, certain uh, methods, you can basically insert certain transgenes into ES cells. And then the idea would be that these transgenes express, for example, uh, uh, um, products, proteins that have an effect on that inhibits tumor growth. And they would then selectively migrate to the tumor and basically kill the tumor. So there are many types of stem cells um, that uh, researchers hope to be able to use for these and other applications. So I will actually skip over the next section which deals with the induced pluripotent stem cells because I think Dr. Hart already extensively covered uh, this material. going to talk about the structure and function of biomembranes. Okay. See if this works. All right. So, why do we cell? Why does the cell need biomembranes? Do you have any idea? Any suggestions? Yes. Compartmentalize a lot of things. Yeah. Separate the ion concentration. So, compartmentalization is a big, big 
uh, class for a cell um, because you can have multiple processes occurring at the same time in a cell. And then if you think about cells in a tissue or in an organ, um, they're the same principle applies. You basically can have things happening at the same time. So of course, when you think about cell membrane, you usually think about the plasma membrane. But of course, most uh, all the organelles in the cell have membranes too, such as the nucleus, the lysosomes, etc. But not all these membranes are the same. They actually have very unique compositions of their lipids and also of the proteins that you can find uh, in these organelles. Um, and also the interior of these organelles have different compositions, which basically goes boils down to the same principle. So for example, if you look at the internal pH of the lysosome, that's about pH 5 compared to about neutral pH uh, in the uh, cytosol around it. So the membrane basically acts as a barrier. It can prevent uh, free diffusion of um, of, uh, of, uh, of certain molecules, and that's the reason why membranes also contain transport proteins, because these will then allow to selectively transport certain molecules uh, across a membrane. Now, if we want to understand the function of such a membrane, we first have to look at the structure, and um, you're probably all familiar <coughs> with this picture here, um, where you can see that in such a uh, membrane, we basically have this uh, bilayer of uh, phospholipids that align with one another. You see how they have these long, basically hydrophobic tails that align with each other in a hydrophobic interior, and then they have these polar head groups which uh, face outwards and are in contact with the, the polar or aqueous uh, environment. Okay. You see another uh, molecular model of the lipid bilayer. Again, the hydrophobic interior here, which is made up by these uh, hydrophobic tails, and then the polar head groups. You can also nicely see in this picture how we have proteins that either span the lipid bilayer, the transmembrane proteins, or then we have other proteins that are just peripherally attached to the membrane. Okay. So proteins can be associated with these biological membranes in uh, many different ways. And first here we have the integral membrane protein, which basically spans the lipid bilayer. And as you will see in a moment, these proteins need to have basically uh, a domain or a certain region which has a lot of hydrophobic residues that face the hydrophobic interior of uh, the lipid bilayer. And these integral membrane proteins also like to form very large complexes with other uh, integral membrane proteins, or they can have peripheral membrane proteins that attach to these integral membrane proteins. Um, I also want to mention that these peripheral membrane proteins can also uh, sometimes associate through uh, uh, non-covalent interactions directly with the lipid bilayer. Um, and then another way for a protein to basically get anchored to the membrane is by attaching a covalent uh, lipid, and that keeps them attached basically to one side, one leaflet of the phospholipid bilayer. The other thing I want to point out is, as you already heard about the integrins, many of these uh, membrane proteins 
have certain adapter proteins that then allow it to connect to the cytoskeleton inside the cell. And again, each um, organelle of a cell contains a very unique set of proteins. For example, the lysosomes, we have an ATPase, which uh, acts as a proton pump. And it is important because it needs to lower, it pumps protons inside uh, the lysosome. And this way, it can basically lower the pH. OK, so each uh, membrane in an organelle of the different organelles, the membranes are different, and the lipid composition even varies from one cell type to another, and of course it varies among the membranes of an organelle. But the most common uh, phospholipids that you find in such a membrane are these phosphoglycerides. And you probably learned about these phosphoglycerides in some of the other lectures. But basically, these uh, phosphoglycerides consist of two uh, fatty acyl tails, so these are two fatty acids, which are then esterified here to uh, glycerol. Right, that's the red group here. And then they're coupled via a phosphodiester bond to one of these uh, polar head groups. Okay. And you can see very nicely how these two fatty acids basically form the hydrophobic tail, whereas the polar head groups and actually glycerol itself too, and the phosphor here, those provide the hydrophilic portion of these phosphoglycerides. And um, these phosphoglycerides can be uh, classified or are classified according to the head group that uh, they have. So here, phosphodiethylethanolamine uh, basically is the head group uh, here, and then phosphodiethylcholine here, phosphodiethylserine, so that's a derivative of the amino acid uh, serine, phosphodiethylinositol, and so these form the different phosphoglycerides. So here's again a more detailed picture of this very same thing. Again, we have the two fatty acids that are linked to glycerol, ester bonds, carbon one and two, and then we basically have this um, alcohol head group called choline, which is linked to glycerol via phosphodiester bond. Again, here in yellow, you, see, you can see the hydrophobic tail, which would be facing the interior of the phospholipid bilayer. And then you have the hydrophilic head on the other side, which faces the aqueous solution. OK. So here they are again, the different head groups. Phosphodiethylcholine contains a group called choline. Ethanolamine is in the phosphoglyceride, phosphodiethylethanolamine, etc. And actually, phosphodiethylcholine and phosphodiethylethanolamine are the most common head groups, uh, and therefore these um, are the most abundant phospholipid classes. Yes. Um, I think you should remember the basics of them, but I will not ask you what exactly does ethanolamine look like. Okay. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. yeah. It's just the, the concepts of it. OK. Now, why, is, why are these tails hydrophobic? Anyone know? Does anyone know? 
Yeah. They're long carbon chains, so it's not polar, exactly. So they, they are not electrically polarized, right? Um, so in this way, they basically um, cannot well integrate into the structure of water, and they basically disrupt what you could call the ordered structure of water, which, as you know, forms uh, hydrogen bonds. So that's why they're hydrophilic. Uh, hydrophobic, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So here's again the same structure. Polar head groups facing outwards. Hydrophobic fatty acid chains are confined to interior and out of contact with the aqueous environment. And this can actually be nicely visualized in a transmission EM picture, which you can see here. Um, this is a section through the plasma membrane. You see here is the exterior, here's the cytosol, and essentially the sections get stained with osmium tetroxide. That's a, a reagent which specifically labels the, the head groups of these phospholipids. So you can see like the uh, like, like train tracks essentially you have here the, the two uh, lines which uh, basically are the uh, head groups of, of the phospholipid bilayer and in between you see the white space, which basically is uh, where you would find these hydrophobic tails. Now, aside from these lipid bilayers, these phospholipids can also form other structures. And there are two examples which are shown here. And basically the way that these uh, phospholipids organize uh, is always the energetically most favorable uh, shape. And this is actually determined pretty much by the shape of the phospholipid itself. Okay? So here you can see that uh, in this example with this micelle here, which um, contains just a single layer of phospholipids, and these micelles are formed by uh, such phospholipids that just have a single fatty acid attached to them. Um, and the micelles are also formed by certain detergents. And essentially, these are all molecules that have such a conical shape, okay? Because if you had two fatty acids attached, you will get more such a cylindrical shape. And then these, uh, 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 these phospholipids prefer to actually form this kind of structure, a liposome which basically have a, has an aqueous interior and pretty much resembles uh, an organelle in the cell. And these liposomes have actually found clinical applications. You can pack certain drugs or substances into the aqueous interior of these liposomes and use them as a vehicle to basically transport these drugs into cells. Okay, um, there's also an effect of uh, the type of liposome, uh, sorry, the type of phospholipid that you integrate into a bilayer on the actual uh, thickness and curvature of the membranes. And that's shown here. Um, for example, if you have a single uh, bilayer that's made of phosphatidylcholine, you see it has a, a width of about 3.5 nanometers. Now, if you use a different phospholipid, sphingomyelin here, you see that the membrane will actually be thicker about five nanometers. And 
then there are other classes of uh, phospholipids, and we'll talk about them in just a second, such as cholesterol. And if you integrate cholesterol into a layer of phosphatidylcholine, you see that the membrane thickness slightly increases. But if you integrate it in a, into um, an area that has fingomyelin, then the thickness will stay about the same. So different types of the lipid composition can have an effect on the actual width of the, of the membrane. And down here is a different example for uh, two examples of two different phosphoglycerides, phosphodidylcholine and phosphodidylethanolamine. And mainly, uh, they differ in the size of their head group. If you look at them here, phosphodidylcholine has a big head group, and then phosphodidylethanolamine has a smaller head group. And you see the effect that this has on the shape of the phosphoglyceride itself. So for phosphodylcholine, you basically get the cylindrical structure. And phosphodylethanolamine, uh, you get this conical structure, which then leads to bending of a membrane. So now, of course, every uh, phospholipid bilayer uh, has two leaflets, an outer and an inner. And you could, for example, integrate uh, just phosphodylcholine, let's say, in the outer membrane, and phosphodylethanolamine into the inner membrane, you see what effect it has. It basically induces a curvature in the membrane. Do you have any questions on that? Yes? Is that curvature that the is getting through a smaller head group? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So another principle is that these pure phospholipid bilayers will always form sealed compartments. Reason being that such an edge here, which you would see in a non-closed conformation of a bilayer, would be exposing the hydrophobic interior of the bilayer to the aqueous environment. And that's, of course, energetically not very favorable. So therefore, these, uh, when you put pure phospholipids uh, Oh, pure phospholipid bilayers will always prefer to form such a closed uh, structure. So no, no cell, basically, no membrane in the cell can have a free edge, as it's shown here on the left side. So it's a very simple but important observation. And the other observation is that cellular membranes are asymmetric. So basically, every cellular membrane has an internal face which is uh, in contact with the cytosol. It's also called a cytosolic phase. And then it has an exoplasmic phase, which is presented to the environment. And I will show you in a second what that looks like. Um, and then we have organelles with two membranes, which are, which organelles have two membranes? Nucleus, mitochondria, Chloroplasts. Okay, very good. <laughs> All right. So in organelles with two membranes, you basically have the hexoplasmic surface facing the lumen between the two membranes. This sounds very complicated, but I will show you another cartoon, which will make it, uh, which will uh, make it clearer to you. So essentially, you have to imagine that each leaflet of a membrane has a different composition of lipids and proteins. So they're not the same. Okay? So the cytosolic phase here is different from the exoplasmic phase. 
Now, in a, and you can see how the different leaflets here are colored in gray and in red. So exoplasmic phase, gray, cytosolic phase in red. So you can see that in uh, single membrane organelles such as the lysosome, you have the cytosolic phase still facing the cytosol, but you have the exoplasmic phase, right, which in the plasma membrane faces outwards to the exterior, it actually faces the lumen of the lysosome. And this may be a little confusing, but if you look at the, at the vesicle here, which basically first butts inwards and then pinches off as a vesicle during endocytosis, you see how this um, formation of the vesicle will lead to the ex exoplasmic phase to, to become the uh, phase that basically faces the interior of the lysosome. Is that clear? Okay. Now it gets more complicated for, as I said, the organelles with double membranes. Here you can see how the exoplasmic phase of both the outer membrane and the inner membrane faces the space in between those two membranes, the intermembrane space. So how do we explain that? Has anyone heard about the endosymbiont hypothesis? Yes. So what does it mean? What does it state? Um, well, it was thought that um, like mitochondria or chloroplasts were free living bacteria before like in ancient times and then um, a bigger cell endocytosis then they formed a, uh, like a symbiotic relationship that benefited each other. So the idea is it had a membrane itself and the other cell engulfed it in endocytosis so it got another membrane from the host cell yeah, very good. So yet, just to repeat it, essentially we had this ancient cell which got an evolutionary advantage by incorporating one of two cell types, or actually implants both cell types, uh, basically two ancient bacteria, those that were able to um, undergo oxidative phosphorylation, and then others that were able to do photosynthesis. So by incorporating them, uh, you basically generated these double membrane uh, organelles, namely the mitochondria and the chloroplasts. And now it becomes also clearer that essentially the, the ancient um, uh, uh, cell membrane, or the, the cell membrane of the ancient bacteria, right, would basically be the inner membrane here of the mitochondrion um, because it has been taken up by the cell by endocytosis and therefore the, the outer leaflet basically of this ancient bacterial membrane is now the exoplasmic phase of the uh, mitochondrial uh, inner membrane. Is that clear? So think about a bacterium that gets taken up by a cell and so the membrane of that bacterium then becomes basically the inner membrane of the mitochondria. Now, here's another scheme that basically um, shows the same thing. Uh, you can see how the, uh, the faces of cell membranes are essentially conserved during the process of endocytosis and exocytosis. So again, during endocytosis, you basically have a region of the membrane uh, that pinches off and then gives rise to such a vesicle here. You can see how the exoplasmic membrane comes to lie on the inside 
uh, in the vesicle, facing basically the lumen of the vesicle. And what's also important is that uh, membrane proteins usually are incorporated in an asymmetric manner. So, of course, the exoplasmic segment of a protein may be different from its cytosolic domain, or usually is different. And when uh, these, uh, during the process of endocytosis, you can see how this exoplasmic segment now becomes to lie uh, in uh, the region that faces the lumen. Okay? And, of course, this process can be reversed during exocytosis. And it's going to be important uh, when we talk about those proteins that go through the secretory pathway, which, of course, are secreted uh, by uh, exocytosis. All right. Now, temperature has a big influence on the physical properties of these membranes. So at uh, body temperature, these, uh, this phospholipid bilayer and its phospholipids are basically in, in rapid motion. Okay? So each of these phospholipids can uh, rapidly diffuse within the leaflet. Um, and I will show you in a second that basically a flip-flop to the other side is a rather rare event. Now, if you cool down um, these membranes below what's called the phase transition temperature, they basically um, undergo this phase transition and adopt a more gel-like or almost crystalline state. So similar to the phase transitions that water goes through when uh, basically cool down water and it freezes. Now, if you heat up the membranes again, you can see how these fatty acid chains become disordered. And again, they will rapidly exchange positions with their neighbors. So the movement of these phospholipids uh, is really fast. You see that they have um, basically an exchange rate with their neighbor. Uh, and that happens about 10 to the 7 times per second. There's rapid diffusion there within the same leaflet um, of such a phospholipid bilayer. However, the rate for a flip-flop, meaning the transition of one phosphoglyceride to, into the other leaflet is really uh, uh, long. Uh, it's between 6 to 20 hours. And the reason being that in order for such a phospholipid to cross over to the other side, it basically has to carry its, uh, its polar head group through the hydrophobic interior of the membrane. So flip-flop is a really rare event. Now, let's briefly talk about how lipid composition can actually influence the physical properties of the membrane. Now, we already talked about the hydrophobic effect that basically holds these chains together because they want to be shielded from the, um, the aqueous and the polar exterior, the aqueous solution. So that's how they come to align with one another in this hydrophobic interior. But there's another effect which um, basically fortifies this structure and uh, makes these phospholipid bilayer stable. And these are the so-called Van der Waals effects. Does anyone remember what these Van der Waals effects are? Anyone? Yeah? Okay, induced dipoles. Um, so these are transient dipoles that are generated uh, basically, if you bring two atoms into close contact, and when the uh, basically they generate, they induce uh, trans dipoles in the electron clouds of these atoms, and that in turn leads to 
uh, basically an attraction uh, or attractive forces, these so-called Van der Waals interactions. Now, of course, the more atoms you bring in close opposition to each other, the more Van der Waals interactions you can form. And as a result, phosphoglycerides and other phospholipids um, basically have a long chain will have higher melting temperatures. Okay, uh, So that means um, there are more Van der Waals interactions because the, the fatty acid groups are much longer. Um, now there's another feature here that you find in certain uh, phospholipids and they can be either saturated or unsaturated. And by the way, you probably heard that the FDA just recently banned uh, saturated fatty acids in food so we all can live a healthier life. <laughs> um, so here's an example of a saturated fatty acid, palmitate, and then here's an example of an unsaturated fatty acid. As you all know, unsaturated in this case means that they have a double bond uh, between uh, these two carbons here in this case. There can also be polyunsaturated fatty acids, in which case you have multiple uh, such double bonds. You can see that this double bond basically has a severe effect on the structure of the molecule because it induces this rigid uh, kink here. And that again, that in turn has an effect on uh, the alignment of the phospholipids in a lipid bilayer. You can see that in a uh, bilayer that's completely made up, made out of um, the saturated phospholipids, they can very neatly align with one another and therefore form a more consistent uh, phospholipid bilayer. Whereas in such bilayers that have only unsaturated fatty acids, you see how that kink leads to sort of a uh, less even spacing of these molecules. So as a result of this, um, membranes that have um, more of these unsaturated fatty acids will have um, a lower melting temperature. So they're more fluid. Now aside from these uh, phosphoglycerides, there's another very important group, another class of membrane lipids, and these are the so-called steroids. And I'm just going to give you one example, which is cholesterol. Um, you can see that cholesterol, um, which is a derivative of, uh, it's a steroid. Essentially, it has um, this um, basic structure here, which is the four uh, hydrocarbon ring. And then it also has um, this hydrophilic region, which in this case is just a single hydroxyl group. Okay, So we have this large hydrophobic region here and then a hydrophilic region on the other end. So in that sense, it is similar. Uh, it's also an amphipathic molecule, just like the uh, phosphoglycerides. It has a hydrophobic region and a hydrophilic region. Now, basically, these, there's cholesterol and other sterols there, too um, hydrophobic, because they just have a single hydroxyl group to form a bilayer structure on their own. But what they can do is they basically have to intercalate uh, with other phosphoglycerides uh, into a lipid bilayer. And this way, they can be incorporated into these biomembranes. In fact, as you can see here, they basically can pack in a one-to-one -one ratio with uh, these phospholipids. Now, 
cholesterol itself is very important in determining the fluidity of these biomembranes um, because in uh, the plasma membrane is shown here the interaction of the uh, hydrophobic tails of the phosphoglycerides with uh, cholesterol tends to immobilize these tails and therefore um, cholesterol will actually decrease the fluidity of these biomembranes. So just to summarize, as I showed to you, the short-chain fatty acid groups tend to increase lateral mobility because we have fewer van der Waals interactions here. Unsaturated fatty acids tend to increase fluidity because um, they have this rigid kink. And then cholesterol and other sterols, they tend to impede the mobility of these fatty acids and basically they decrease um, the fluidity of membranes. All right, <clears throat> so after the sterols, I want to briefly uh, talk about another class of membrane lipids, and these are the sphingolipids. Here's the basic structure of a sphingolipid, and in contrast to the phosphoglycerides, these sphingolipids are derivatives of uh, sphingosine, which is a primary alcohol, and it's basically linked to a very long chain of fatty acids via an amide bond, which you can see here. So there's one fatty acid here in black, and this is basically the sphingosine molecule up here. And then we have again a phosphodiester bond to either uh, sphingomyelin or uh, galactoserapride. So this is um, essentially a group here, which is derived from serine and not glycerol, as is the case in the phosphoglycerides. Okay. Now, sphingolipids and cholesterols are special because um, they are found in certain areas of the membrane that is less fluid. Okay. So there's certain microdomains in these membranes, whether it's organelles or plasma membrane that seem to be less fluid because they integrate sphingolipids and cholesterol. And these microdomains are called lipid rafts because you can imagine that they float through the lipid bilayer uh, like a lipid raft. And one type of such uh, microdomain uh, is actually shown here. These are the so-called cavioli. And uh, basically, if you look at the cell uh, you, uh, by transmission EM, you can see them as these uh, small pits here which are omega-shaped, um, and these cavioli uh, have been described to function in certain types of endocytosis, and uh, more importantly, they seem to also be basically accumulating certain signaling molecules like transmembrane proteins that signal in these uh, less fluid microdomains, and they basically become signaling centers in the cell. They also play a role in uh, what's called mechanotransduction, uh, so they sit at the surface in, in some cells and basically monitor the flow of blood over the surface of the endothelial cells. Remember the endothelial cells are again the cells that basically line the blood vessels. So these are the so-called lipid rafts. All right, now I want to talk a little bit more about membrane proteins. Again, 
just this cartoon here to show you that they can uh, be attached to a membrane in different ways. We can find these integral membrane proteins which span uh, basically across the lipid bilayer. We have um, peripheral uh, membrane proteins which are, as shown here, uh, attached to these integral membrane proteins, but some of them can also form interactions actually with the polar head groups of the phospholipid bilayer. And then we have again uh, these lipid anchored protein, which extend basically uh, a fatty acyl uh, tail that inserts into one leaflet of the phospholipid bilayer. You can see that there's a major difference here between this lipid anchored protein and the integral protein in that these integral proteins are often linked to the cytoskeleton, which holds them in a certain place in the cellular membrane, whereas these lipid anchored protein can quickly, uh, rapidly, basically diffuse within the membrane uh, from one side to another. So in the next five to 10 minutes, we'll have a closer look at what these different types of proteins really look like at the molecular level. And so let's first have a look at the integral membrane proteins. And as you may know, these integral membrane proteins often have a certain conformation. Uh, and especially the segment that spans across the membrane often adopts an alpha helical conformation. So this is the so-called transmembrane domain in the protein. And basically 20 to 25 hydrophobic amino acids usually form such an alpha helical segment that holds the transmembrane domain, uh, the transmembrane protein in such a lipid bilayer. Now here's an example uh, of such a single transmembrane uh, domain uh, protein, which is glycophorin A. Now glycophorin A is a major protein in red blood cells and essentially carries certain uh, modifications on its extracellular domain, which phase basically which phases out of the red blood cells, and that actually allows red blood cells to, to roll along um, the capillaries without getting too much attached uh, to these cells. So um, it's a very important protein, and you can see that glycophorin uh, is associating basically with another uh, glycophorin monomer here in the membrane, and it then can form the two membrane-spanning helices here will interact uh, through hydrophobic interactions. And then we have, uh, at the end of the helix, we have certain uh, negatively charged, I'm uh, sorry, we have positively charged amino acids which can interact with the negatively charged uh, head groups of the phospholipids. So these also help to basically anchor glycophorin in the membrane. So these green squares here on the side, those are actually uh, residues, I should say amino acids, that have been uh, modified with uh, sugars. So uh, glycophorin is a glycosylated protein. We'll talk more about glycosylating, glycosylation in the lecture after the break. Now, if we zoom in on this transmembrane region of glycophorin, you can see that these transmembrane domains basically associate with each other and they form a so-called coil-coil motif. And 
for those of you who were there in my first lecture, we, we talked about these uh, cold coal motif. So essentially, it's a structural motif. We have um, two alpha helices that coil around each other and basically form uh, interactions or hydrophobic interactions, I should say. And then you also have what's indicated here are hydrophobic side chains that basically phase outward in, uh, out of this transmembrane segment. And so they can form hydrophobic uh, contacts with the surrounding um, fatty acid chains of the phosphoglycerides in the lipid bilayer. Okay, so the next example here is bacteria rhodopsin, very interesting molecule. It's a light sensing protein. Um, it basically belongs to a large group of proteins that is defined by um, a domain that consists of seven transmembrane alpha helices. Okay? You also see here in, in black that it has a, a retinal group attached to it which is sensitive to light. So you will find these uh, proteins in bacteria and when they're exposed to light, essentially the retinal group here will induce a conformational change and this conformational change in the protein then results in uh, the protein pumping out protons, so out of the cytoplasm of the bacterial cell. And in this way, it establishes a gradient of protons, which can then be used by the bacteria to synthesize ATP. Now, this is just an example, but there are, of course, many other proteins that have this uh, seven alpha helix uh, transmembrane fold. Another very important group are the G protein coupled receptors, and I'm sure you heard a lot about these in other lectures. Uh, so they also have such a seven transmembrane uh, alpha helix domain that spans the membrane. Okay, then we have another group of proteins that have, has a completely different topology or conformation. So their structure differs very radically from the ones you've just seen. Um, they basically exhibit a beta sheet structure which is called a beta barrel. So there's several beta sheets which form a bell barrel. And in such a barrel, you have all the hydrophobic side chains of uh, the beta sheets facing uh, the lipid bilayer. Okay? And then on the other hand, the hydrophilic residues of the side chains are exposed to the inside of the pore. And yeah, essentially many of these uh, beta barrels will form a pore structure, which you see in this slide here. Okay? That's why they're called porings. So the structure shown here, of course, has been solved by X-ray crystallography of a certain pouring called OMPX. And this actually just shows a monomer of this particular pouring. But the porings are usually found in the membrane as trimers. So you have three of these monomers associated with one another in the membrane. And they form then uh, these porine structures. Now the porine here, and this is actually not just the case for AMP-X, but for all the porines, they have this 16 uh, anti-parallel beta sheet fold. And you can see very nicely, if you follow these beta sheets, how they basically form this tunnel. And this pore on the inside, as I said, has a lot of hydrophilic residues which allow the diffusion of uh, either small ions or uh, water through this hydrophilic pore.
So this slide here is just, just shows you two examples of proteins that can adopt much more complex topologies and you really don't need to learn these structures here. I just want you to know that uh, the couple of examples I gave you are just the classical examples for different uh, transmembrane folds, the beta barrel, the single transmembrane uh, alpha helical fold, and the seven transmembrane alpha helical fold. But you can see that in this case here, uh, we have this mammalian glucose importer, and actually has a total of 14 alpha helical uh, transmembrane domains. Um, and as the name implies, it basically shuffles glucose from one side of the cell to the other side. And then here we have the muscle calcium ATPase with uh, 10 alpha helical transmembrane domains. And um, the muscle calcium ATPase essentially shuffles calcium out of muscle cells after contraction. So these are just a few more examples. All right, now these membrane proteins associate with, um, or have a tendency to associate with other transmembrane proteins into very large complexes. And one of the largest protein complexes that we know of is the nuclear pore complex, which is embedded in the uh, nuclear envelope, uh, which as you know is also double membrane. Um, so the nuclear pore complex actually consists of 30 uh, different proteins, which are called the nuclear porins, and they're associated in a structure that looks like the one shown here. Um, now these protein complexes are so big that they can actually be visualized uh, in a scanning electron microscope, which gives you these nice 3D images here. Um, so if you look at this nuclear pore complex from basically the cytosol, uh, you would see these uh, shapes here, uh, these octagonal shapes. If you look at the pore complexes from the inside of the nucleus, you see these um, basket-like, uh, these filaments which form, form these little baskets, okay? So if you look at the cartoon here on the right, you see again how these uh, so-called nuclear pouring uh, proteins um, can form such a, a basket, a terminal ring, and these filaments here. And then we also have these so-called spokes uh, proteins, which basically tie the two uh, membranes together uh, of the nuclear envelope. And these are all uh, nuclear porine proteins. So it's a very large uh, protein complex made of 30 different uh, nuclear porins. Okay, so now we've basically finished uh, the discussion of the integral membrane proteins, and I briefly want to touch on the lipid anchor proteins. So again, these proteins are attached to the lipid bilayer by covalently attached uh, lipid. And what's important is that the protein itself does actually not insert into the lipid bilayer. Now they can be attached in uh, different ways, and one example is shown here of such a modification. Um, essentially, there are certain proteins which are anchored to the cytosolic phase, which is shown down here, which uh, are modified with a fatty acyl group that is called myristate. Okay? And myristate is a 14-carbon fatty acid, and essentially it gets attached to the N-terminus of the protein during protein synthesis. So as soon as the N-terminus comes out of the ribosome, 
um, some of these proteins get myristorylated. So basically, it's a co-translational process. Um, so there's a certain enzyme called, you don't need to remember that, N-myristorial transferase, hard to pronounce. Um, so just to give you an example, there's a protein called SARC, SARC kinase. You probably heard about SARC kinase. It plays an important role, for example, in the signaling of integrins. And it has also been found as a mutated form uh, to be able to in, in, induce uh, tumors, or tumor formation, I should say. And you see how uh, SARC can become attached to the inner leaflet of a phospholipid bilayer by such a, a myristate group. All right, then there's a second group of proteins which become uh, prenylated or palmitoylated. Um, so in contrast to the myristoyl groups, these prenyl and palmitoyl groups um, are attached to the C-terminus of a protein. Okay, and I should also point out that these are, the prenyl groups are intermediates of sterile synthesis so that's actually an example shown down here. They have these isoprene subunits. You probably learned about that in organic chemistry. And then uh, the other uh, groups that become attached in this way, uh, that's a palmitic acid, which as you already saw is a saturated uh, fatty acid. So they become attached um, to the C-terminus to a cysteine residue, essentially, in the protein. And this kind of protein modification occurs after the protein is completely synthesized. Now, why are these modifications important? Because they can, of course, mediate the firm attachment of these proteins to uh, the membrane. And also, in many cases, uh, this membrane localization of these proteins is required for their activation. So there's also a function to this modification in that they can, in certain for certain proteins really activate uh, the function of the protein. Now there's a third type of modification, a very important one, which you can find, for example, in the proteoglycans that we talked about the other day. Um, and in this case, the proteins become attached now to the exoplasmic phase of a cell membrane by a so-called GPI anchor. Okay, so these GPI anchors are essentially um, are introduced on the proteins whilst they travel through the ER, okay? So you heard about the secretory pathway. These kind of lipid modifications occur uh, whilst the protein is in the endoplasmatic reticulum. And then you see the basic structure of such a GPI anchor here which varies um, actually quite a bit in different cell types, but they always contain this one molecule here, which is phosphodiinositol, and you may recognize this molecule. This is actually phosphoglyceride. Then we have a couple of other residues here, and then we have actually uh, phosphodiinethanolamine here, which uh, links the C-terminus of a protein to uh, this GPI anchor. <coughs> so, because we're attaching um, these sugars to the protein, GPI-anchored proteins are actually uh, glyco... Uh, sorry, the GPI-anchors themselves are actually glycolipids because we attach uh, sugar residues to them. 
So as you will see in some of the next lectures, the addition of these sugar moieties to lipids and proteins is very common. It's a process that's called uh, glycosylation. And um, it's also important to note that many of these glycosylated proteins are asymmetrically uh, localized in the cell membrane. And um, it's really important to know that the glycosylated portions of these proteins will always face outward. Okay? So these, occur, these modifications actually occur in the lumen of the endoplasmatic reticulum. And then when these proteins transport, are transported to the plasma membranes through the secretory pathway, these uh, domains then become to lie on the outside, on the exterior. These are the extracellular domains. So the glycosylations will always be found on uh, the exterior, uh, the extracellular domain of a protein. This is again shown here in this picture for glycophorin. You see that it has the extracellular domain here, cytosolic domain here, and all the sugar attachments can be found on the extracellular domain. And the same is true for the glycolipids, where uh, you will find these glycolipids only in the, uh, the leaflet that faces the exterior. Now, the addition of these uh, sugar moieties to lipids and also to transmembrane proteins is very common. And they play an important role during blood transfusions. So if you've ever donated blood, they probably ask you for your blood group. And your blood group is actually determined by the way that, these, um, um, that your proteins and lipids at the surface of your blood cells are glycosylated. So here you can see the um, A, B, and O uh, blood antigen groups. And you see that these are all structurally related oligosaccharides. Now we all have, we all carry this particular sugar structure on the surface of our lipids and proteins. And that's the O antigen. And then you see that some people uh, have actually um, a particular enzyme that can then add uh, a certain sugar residue here, and those people will have the A antigen. And then other people have a different enzyme, and that adds, for example, here, galactose residue, and they then have the B antigen. <clears throat> so we all have the enzymes, basically, that are needed to synthesize O, but we, some of us only have either of these two enzymes to synthesize A or B. Now what's important here is that you basically have to match um, the blood group of a donor with the one of the recipient because people will always make antibodies against the sugar um, that they don't have on their antigen, okay? So for example, you see that uh, people with blood group A, as I said, they carry the antigen A on the surface, but they make antibodies against B because B to them is foreign, okay? And the immune system wants to recognize what is foreign. People with the blood group uh, B have anti-A anti uh, antibodies. Now, people with blood group A and B, they basically have both antigens, both types of sugar structures on the surface. So therefore, they don't make any antibodies. 
then you have people with blood group O. And O makes both anti-A and anti-B antibodies. So what's going to happen is if you basically wrongly match the donor and the recipient, let's say you give blood from a, a person with blood group B to a person with blood group A, then this person has anti-B antibodies in their blood, and they will very efficiently target those uh, donor blood cells and kill them. So that won't work. Now, can anyone tell me why blood group A is so important? Uh, blood group O is so important. It's a universal donor and can be given to any of these three uh, uh, patients with any of these three blood group types. Okay. Um, so that's why it's so important to match up uh, blood group donors and the recipients. Okay. And I will leave it here. Uh, we'll just conclude here, and then we will move on to the next chapter after the holiday break. So enjoy the holidays.